welcome back to Hey Change. I have some very exciting announcements today. I'll start by saying that that intro you just listened to, the beautiful intro, was played and recorded by Madeline Wallace on her awesome, really cool African instruments. And you're about to get to know Madeline a lot more very soon because she is coming on board as my co-host. And for a while now, I've been feeling like I've been missing something, like there's something there that just like needs to be filled, some void. And I realized I need a co-host. I want someone else to be by my side, someone to chat with, someone to wrap up and interview with and discuss what we just learned. And so Madeline is going to come on board and do that. And this girl is just amazing. So I can't wait for you to get to know her a lot more. Secondly, I want to say that I'm not someone who knows a lot about politics, but I'm very interested. And since it's election year here in the US and so much is at stake, I also feel like politics is something that all of us need to talk about a lot more. And so I'm very honored to say that I have interviewed a presidential candidate. His name is Howie Hawkins, and he is representing the Green Party. And his politics are just sort of out of this world. It's very different from many other politics you might hear about right now, but I feel like it's literally what we need to start talking about and the shifts we need to see in our society if we are to head for a sustainable, just, and equitable future. So this episode has a very big place in my heart, and I hope that you will learn a lot and start a lot of conversations around the dinner table and with your friends and family. And lastly, I also want to announce that there is now a Patreon page for Hey Change. Uh, it's under my name, Anne Therese, and I would be so appreciative of any sort of small donation. I put a lot of time and effort into making this podcast, and I'm really trying hard to have really good guests come on show and inspire all of us. So if you're someone who listens to this podcast, and if you find like you're learning new things and getting inspired, I would just really appreciate a small climate coffee. You can go and buy me a coffee for $3 a month, and you can sip it whatever you wish and I'll chat away and we can all have a learning session together. So I will link the Patreon page in the show notes and if you feel inclined, I will receive that with a lot of appreciation and love. So let's get to today's episode because it's a really good one. I want to start by introducing Howie so he gets a proper introduction. Howie Hawkins has been an organizer in movements for peace, justice, labor, the environment, and independent working class politics since 1967. And this is when he got active as a teenager in the San Francisco Bay Area. And like I mentioned before, today he's running for president for the Green Party and... Yeah, I'm just so honored to have him on my show. Howie is also a socialist who believes in self-organization, independent political action, and international solidarity by the working class and oppressed people for full political and economic democracy. And he thinks that this is the way to build a society of freedom, equality, solidarity, peace, and ecological sustainability. The main thing he's pushing is for an eco-socialist Green New Deal. And yeah, you're about to learn everything about that shortly. But before we get to Howie, I want you to get a chance to get to know Madeline. She, like I said, is a superstar and I think you'll find her very inspiring. So Maddie, please introduce yourself. Who are you? What are you doing in this world? And how are you trying to change it? Well everybody listening. I met Anne because I was interviewing her on a podcast that 
I was previously co-hosting and we hit it off and she decided to sign me to her amazing agency and she became my agent, but we also became really good friends. And she's one of the people that I really feel like we can have these discussions and um, we're both active in similar spaces, but also we have different backgrounds and we end up having these conversations that are so robust and we're like, why can't we just record them? Because there's chances are that people relate and people can learn things too. But yeah, I guess a little bit about me. My background is in activism since I was a kid. I got really interested in and involved in climate justice. I was a very young plaintiff in a federal court case suing the government that made its way up to the Supreme Court. That was when I was 16. I got really involved in microplastics issues, done a lot of field research. I completed my undergraduate at Columbia in environmental science and politics, and I am starting my master's of science in sustainability management at Columbia this fall. So I've gotten really into sustainable fashion the last couple of years, kind of modeling casually, but also being a brand ambassador and learning a lot about sustainable fashion, kind of consulting and speaking and sort of all that good stuff. So my background is quite wide ranging, but I like to call myself a climate advocate because I think that that covers pretty much everything. And I'm a native New Yorker, (laughs) which I feel like is important to say. I'm proud of that. I'm also creative. I'm a musician. It's just like, that's, yeah, that's just one of those things like Pandora's box, you open it up and suddenly everything keeps like jumping out at you like oh she also went to where and studied microplastics and she has a background in you know environmental law and like she's been suing the government and she's awesome and she's beautiful and she's really good energy and I feel like Madeline is one of those people where I I might sometimes go for a hike because I'm just dealing with too much and I can't get over myself and I'm like I need to get out of here because I'm getting stuck in my own head and then even a hike won't work. And so I'm like, I'm just going to call Madeline. <laughs> and she picks up and we have <laughs> a very deep and heartfelt conversation about just being real. Honestly, I think today it's just so easy to get overwhelmed and we want to do so much and we understand the impact we have on ourselves and each other. And then at some point you will lose yourself. And I think in those times, it's very important to feel comfortable in calling someone and having the conversation and bring each other back up to surface. So that's why I wanted to have you in the show because I feel like these talks could literally help so many other people. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. By the way, I just tuned into your live with, um, what brand was it again? Mate, Mate the Label. Mate the Label, right. An LA brand, sustainable brand from LA. And you were talking about microplastics and how like you wouldn't think they're everywhere, but they're like, in our lakes and our oceans and our drinking water and it's just taking over our the bodies yeah 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 scary it's shit. gonna be a huge public health issue it already is yeah it's totally scary we'll definitely talk about that i could talk for hours and hours about that so it'll happen yeah well so let's start talking about today's topic because we are about to introduce a very special guest i was honored to interview howie hawkins who is a president candidate in this year's election. He is representing the Green Party. And none of us, to be honest, knew about him before. And (laughs) here he's just coming up from nowhere and is saying all this brilliant stuff. And it's like, this guy got it figured out. You know, he knows exactly what this country needs. 
he understands what the world needs. And I think if someone like him were to become president, we would be so far in just a year from now. So it's encouraging to know that some people actually understand the urgency of the matter, not just the urgency, but the, the possibilities we're facing if we just look at it the right way. And he's big on intersectional environmentalism and what it means to actually include all parts of society in this movement and how it's ultimately going to benefit everyone if we start looking at it through that lens. Yeah. So this episode was recorded before Madeline became part of the picture. So it's an, it's an interview between me and Howie. Um, but Madeline and I will be back after the episode to chat more about the current state of politics and how we should think about voting in this election. Howie Hawkins, I am so honored to have you on the show, and I must say I'm thrilled to learn that we have people like you in our current political climate. I also love to learn that your central theme of your campaign is an eco-socialist Green New Deal. And let's dive right into that juicy topic, because I want to learn everything about what you're trying to push and how you want to change the world with your politics. Well, I was the first candidate in this country to campaign for a Green New Deal when I ran for governor in New York in 2010. And at that time, like at this time, we faced the climate meltdown, but we also faced an economic crisis. So it's a program for economic recovery as well as climate recovery. And we call it an eco-socialist Green New Deal because we don't have time to just have some tax incentives and some corporate subsidies and some regulations here and mandates there to get to zero emissions by 2030, which is our goal, because that's what the carbon budgets from climate science say rich countries like the United States have to do if we're going to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. So we want to do like the United States did during the World War II emergency. It took over a quarter of the manufacturing capacity of the country and planned from the national level uh, turning industry on a dime into what they called the arsenal of democracy, which armed the allies against the fascist axis powers. And we need to do nothing less through the public sector to defeat climate change. So we're talking about a public energy system where the utilities and the fuel corporations, you know, the big oil and gas companies come under public control. And we plan a transition to 100% clean energy by 2030. The transportation sector, the railroads, and the airlines would be in a national transportation corporation that would plan the building out of the trolleys, the light rails that all our cities and towns had between the 1890s and the 1930s, uh, instituting high-speed bullet trains between the cities, which will reduce the need for air travel and also get us there faster and safer than the roads. And then we got to electrify and intensify the freight rail network so we can move more of our freight on the rails, which is more energy efficient and cleaner than on the roads with trucks. And then we got to move into manufacturing. We have to transform all our productive systems. See, we're not just talking about clean energy for electricity and then leaving manufacturing, agriculture, buildings, and transportation as they are. We have to transform all those sectors to get to zero emissions. So in the manufacturing sector, we want to do like we did during World War II and build clean manufacturing facilities, Green New Deal factories. So we produce steel with electric arc furnaces instead of coke ovens, which release a lot of carbon. 
and we produce cement that's not Portland cement, which relies on calcium carbonate. The calcium hardens the cement, but the carbonate evaporates into the atmosphere, and that accounts for 5% of the world's carbon footprint. So we have to go through all the production systems and make them clean and as, as zero waste as we can make them. So we're extracting less from the earth and putting less back out as pollution and waste. In agriculture, we got to transform it from industrialized absentee owned corporate agriculture into regenerative organic, organic agriculture that rebuilds soils, which brings carbon out of the atmosphere and uh, creates agroecologies that are integrated into the regional ecology. So we need working farmers. We're going to need about a million more farmers to do that. So we have a program uh, to support that transition, to subsidize the transition away from pesticides and industrial fer or chemical fertilizers and to uh, organic methods and then have parity pricing for all the commodities, not just corn and soy and the things we subsidize now, so that every farmer is guaranteed an income above their production costs. So that, those are some of the things we want to do with this Green New Deal. And we say eco-socialist because we got to do it through the public sector. We need a big sector of public enterprise and planning to coordinate all the things we got to do and get it done in a decade. Well, anyone who knows me know that I am a big soil nerd and I truly believe in regeneration and what beautiful opportunities comes when you start working with the land and learning how we can start to basically reverse everything and it's not just about doing things less but about doing things differently and I think it's that lens that we have to start looking through if we are to figure this out and I want to ask you because obviously we need to see huge shifts in how we produce things and how we transport things and how we operate society in general but how big part do you think the individual needs to play in changing the world like Will these shifts come mainly from a political, socioeconomic scale, or do we need to also really look at ourselves and our own lives and see how we can, you know, better propel this movement? Well, I think individuals making change and educating themselves about their impact on the environment and how they release carbon and the various activities they do is important. Um, that by itself is not enough. I mean, there have been studies saying if we all behaved as optimally as we could under the current production systems, we'd only reduce the carbon emissions by single digits uh, in percentages. So we, we've got to have collective action. But when people examine their own lives and look at what they can do, they begin to understand how the system has to change. And that lends political support to the collective changes we've got to make. So I think it goes hand in hand. But we can't just do it alone. I mean, for example, some people can afford to put on solar panels and, you know, generate their household power by themselves. Not everybody can afford that. Um, and if we rely on that to transform the energy system, it's not going to get us to where we got to go. So we got to have, for example, in retrofitting buildings for clean energy and efficiency, we got to have the government financing the changes up front and then solar and wind actually reduce your costs and over time you can pay back the initial capital costs. So that's a place case where collective action can facilitate individual action. So I think they go hand in hand, but uh, you can't do one without the other. Yeah. And I feel like from a consumer perspective too, I mean, it might be hard right now to see and understand all these changes that we need to see. 
because it is so different from what we're currently used to. But maybe as we start to transition into a greener economy, all these changes will start to make a lot more sense because what seemed to be almost impossible before suddenly becomes the new norm. And that is what people will get used to. Yeah, I think when we think of transportation, for example, um, most people have cars out of necessity because the way our cities and towns are laid out right now, we don't have walkable communities. So you got to get in the car. I mean, I, I live in a food desert in Syracuse. I got to drive 11 miles to the nearest grocery store. And, you know, I, I could bike, I suppose, but I don't have time to do that. So um, we got to we got to transform our communities. I mean, one thing our Eco-Social's Green New Deal is between a big effort at public housing, and we're talking about 25 million units over 10 years, two and a half trillion dollar investment. So everybody has access to affordable housing. But as we plan those developments, we link them to mass transit. So we're creating walkable communities, or at least you can walk to the transit to get to your job or the grocery store. But uh, you know, part of the planning that this Green New Deal should facilitate is how local communities can be more diverse economically and have things more convenient. And I think while, you know, we should encourage car sharing and use of public transportation, the reality is people will use what's most convenient. So we have to make mass transit the most convenient thing. I live in a city in Syracuse. I have a map in our uh, Green Party storefront of the trolley system in the city in 1903. Everybody lived within two blocks of a trolley and they came by every 15 minutes. People got around faster back then than they do now because now you get in your car and you get stuck in traffic. So this is something we've done before and this is sort of a back to the future kind of thing or take agriculture until post-World War II period, most vegetables and fruits and fresh produce uh, and dairy and so forth were, were grown right in the region. You know, you had, they called them truck farms. You know, they were right outside the city and the produce was picked and it was mostly organic and they brought it right into the city. We can go back to that and have better food and a better environment. Yeah, and I, I hate to bring it up, but I sort of feel like I have too, the whole plastic pandemic. I mean, it's incredible how much plastic we use today. I, I almost feel like, shouldn't plastic be illegal at some point? Um, well, plastics are very useful for many things. The thing is, we got to produce plastics that are biodegradable using agricultural feedstocks instead of petrochemical feedstocks. I mean, right now, and you know, people say the Greens should run in only the safe states where Trump or Biden is sure to win and not the battleground states like Pennsylvania. But that's a battleground state for the Greens. We're fighting fracking there. They're fracking the hell out of the state, both the Democrats and Republicans before that. And they're building this complex of pipelines all pointing toward uh, Appalachia and uh, the construction of a petrochemical plastics complex. It's going to be the biggest or one of the biggest in the world. And that's going in exactly the wrong direction. And those plastics will not be biodegradable. So that's another form of production, like I was talking about earlier, that we have to transform. And so if you have plastics that you can put in compost and they return nutrients to the soil. That's not a problem. If you have non-biodegradable plastics, they, they end up in the ocean and then they break into microplastics, which are absorbed through the food chains right back to us. 
and some of them are carcinogenic, some of them are endocrine disruptors, uh, some of them are mutagenic, and that's dangerous to our own health. So we, we got to get away from those non-biodegradable plastics for sure. Yeah, and I also love the concept behind your eco-socialist Green New Deal because it speaks to everything, how everything is interconnected, you know, from social justice to climate justice to income equality, and how ultimately if you work for one, you automatically also progress in the other field, and you can't really succeed with one without the other. Um, can you please speak a little bit more on this and how you feel like this is an important topic today to bring forth? Yeah, I think we have to understand that the same attitudes and institutions that justify the domination of human by human are the same attitudes and institutions that justify the domination of nature or the attempt to dominate nature. And so to reharmonize humanity with nature, we have to reharmonize human with human. So as part of our Green New Deal, we have an economic bill of rights to end poverty and economic despair. So there's a job guarantee. If you can't find a private job, you can go to the employment office instead of the unemployment office and ask for your job. And it would be a job in a public service or a public works or infrastructure project. Um, it includes a guaranteed income above poverty. I mean, Martin Luther King in his last years used to say, you know, the simplest way to end poverty is just give people enough money so they're not poor. I mean, it's not that complicated. Most of our poor people are hardworking people. Their wages are too low. They don't have regular hours, and if they can get two or three jobs, they're working all the time, and they're barely making ends meet. And then we need Medicare for all, a public health insurance system like most developed countries in the world have. So those are some of the economic rights that we include in our eco-socialist Green New Deal, so that it's not pitting, as the corporations want to do, jobs versus the environment. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Our full budget for an eco-socialist Green New Deal, which is on our website, HowieHawkins.us, we come out with 38 million new jobs. And when we released the budget last fall, you know, we, we noted that labor was the bottleneck. We've got the technology. We can raise the money. But will we have enough people to get this done in a decade? Now, with this coronavirus economic crash, we have about 40 million people looking for jobs. So the, that's what I say when I say the Green New Deal is a program for economic recovery as climate recovery. That's what I'm talking about. I was actually just going to get to that because I know that the New Deal um, was sort of birthed out of a recession and society was like, we need to change. And so I think maybe they were successful in driving that deal because of it. Do you think we are looking at similar opportunities now where like everything from social and racial justice and the pandemic and climate change and the economy going crazy. Um, do you think there could be some silver linings in all this craziness where there's room for actual change? Yeah, in, in two respects in particular. First, the COVID pandemic. I mean, we're on pace to a quarter million deaths by the election. And there's a, a epidemiologist at Columbia that today said his estimate is more like 800,000 deaths by the end of this year. I mean, that's an unprecedented calamity. And I think people see that Trump is a loser. He gave up, COVID won. And then they look and say, well, well, where's Biden? 
unlike all the other countries in the world, or at least the organized countries around the Pacific Rim in Europe, they suppress the virus by having a test, contact trace, and isolate program, and they provided sufficient personal protective equipment and medical supplies, particularly to the healthcare sector, but also the people going back to work. So they are reopening their economies and their schools with the rate of infections very low. Here, our infections are exploding. It's a total and complete disaster. So I think people see that. And that's why Trump is collapsing in the polls. He's down an average of 12 points in the battleground states. He's down, depending on the poll, between 10 and 15% in the national polls. And with all this death and all this economic depression, uh, it's, imposs- it's hard to see how he can come back. Um, you know, the question for us is, well, does Biden have any answers? And we don't think so. So that's one. Then the, then the, pandemic races, uh, the pandemic of racism, which is centuries old, and people of color have always understood, but now a lot of white people came out to protest. They were outraged at what they saw in Living Color on the TV sets with George Floyd and others. And I'm encouraged. These are the younger folks, you know, the white folks that came out. Um, and they don't want racism. They're, they're more tolerant than the older generations. And they got their own issues because they're having economic troubles. And they're experiencing this COVID crisis. So I'm encouraged at the uh, outpouring of protest uh, since the George Floyd murder went on TV. So that does give me hope for the future. And I think given what we're seeing in the polls and seeing what we're seeing out on the streets, uh, people have woken up to the seriousness of the problems we faced. And hopefully this will continue. You have been a grassroots activist since the 60s. How does this affect how you do politics? And would you say that your activism allows you to do politics in a different way? Yeah, with all that experience, I've been in a lot of movements where we were a small minority, a vilified minority. You know, the anti-Vietnam War movement in 65 and 66 and 67, you know, we were despised. We were the troublemakers. You know, the World War II generation thought we were unpatriotic and un-American. And then about 1968, after the Tet Offensive, public opinion started to change. And pretty soon we were the majority. And I've been through so many movements where that happened, the anti-nuclear power movement in the 70s and the anti-apartheid movement in the 70s and 80s, right down to us getting a ban on fracking in New York State. I mean, that was six years. And when we started, even the environmentalists were saying we're extremists because like the Sierra Club was saying, natural gas is the bridge fuel. When you're saying that bridge is out, you're going to crash into the abyss. Um, and six years later, Governor Cuomo, who had never supported it, after I got 5% of the vote running for governor for him, and he had wanted to run up the vote to run for president, and he got less than he got when he was first elected, or less than he, his father had ever got as Governor Mary of Cuomo. Uh, he had to look at what we were saying. He couldn't take us for granted. So um, I think... You know, that shows that uh, people just need to be patient. And, you know, if you're convinced that your, your cause is righteous and you, you, your position is well thought out, uh, in time you'll bring people around and you'll win. Yeah, absolutely. And something that we are preaching a lot on this podcast is happy activism and the mindset that will keep you going. Because as an activist, you will have to deal with a lot of naysayers and a lot of pushback and a lot of taking one step forwards and three steps back. 
And having been an activist for so long, what are some advice you can give people for not losing faith and for not giving up? Well, if you're right with yourself about your cause, it's really all you need to be right with. And you just have to have faith over time. Other people will see your point of view. I think having a historical perspective and realizing that movements don't happen because you showed up and you're working real hard. You know, it's a, it's a social process. Um, I think people should be involved in organizations, not just out there, uh, you know, on Facebook or doing whatever they're doing, letters to the editor. They need to be in an organization where you're talking to other people. It develops your thinking, uh, your thoughts, you know, can get criticized and, and advanced. Um, we got to be smart about this. I mean, the, the corporate power structure, they have people working for them 24-7 because they can buy the people to do that. We got to pace ourselves. That's another thing. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you got to work it into your regular life routine and keep doing your part and have faith that others are doing their part. And more and more of us will do that. And in time, we'll have the power we need to make the change we're seeking. So, you know, those are the things I would say. Study history, be in an organization, and uh, be right with yourself about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, have some patience. We'll get there. Thank you for bringing up community because I think it's something we easily forget today with social media and we think we are so strong alone and we feel like we might be part of, you know, a bigger community of some sort because we're out there hashtagging and talking to people. But there is a lot to be gained from actually meeting people and staying connected with like-minded that are fighting the same fight and it's easier to stick to it if you do. So. And in your own geographical community. There's so much we can do at the local level. I mean, I may be running for president, but one of our goals is to get ballot lines. So it's much more easy for Greens to run for local office. And in our federal system, local governments have a lot of power. You know, they have the power to tax and budget and procure. They even have the power of eminent domain where they can take over properties for public purposes. And, you know, they, they call it the laboratory of democracy. That's what Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court judge, called it. Things we do locally that work will then spread. So, but you got to be, you know, physically present with the people in your communities. If you have one of these virtual communities that's scattered all over the country, all over the world, you can't do that kind of uh, local work where it's easy, it's not that hard to get elected if you're a green. Because um, in local elections, the party label, people use party labels, Democrat, Republican, as shorthand because they don't really know who's running. Well, you run a local campaign and you talk to people door to door and they get to know you and you've been around, you've been consistent, they trust you, you can get elected and then, you know, start making these changes. And that's why it's so important that we be part of, you know, local community groups. Um, and I would say, you know, a Green Party chapter, but, you know, whatever it is, uh, you need to be talking to people face to face. Now we got to do it with social distancing and masks and uh, hopefully this will pass uh, after not too long a period, but, you know, we still need to find a way to do that kind of organizing. We keep talking about climate change in terms of all the things that we don't want to happen. Like we don't want our cities to go underwater and we don't want to deplete all our soil because then we can't grow food anymore. And we keep painting this picture of a disastrous future that will be upon us if we don't act. But we rarely talk about the future that we do want to see, which is also very different from what we know today because there are so many things that we need to change. But I think 
If we start talking about the optimistic future that we want to see, it's going to be a lot easier to motivate people to get to work about all the changes. So if you were to paint a picture of an American society or the world at large sometime into the future, what would that reality look like? Well, the Green New Deal we're talking about would uh, create walkable communities like I talked about so that uh, it's a more convenient place to live. Um, we, we have a civilian conservation corps of 4 million people that's going to uh, rebuild our forests, our soils, our habitats, and that's habitat for species that are now threatened. So you'll have more of nature out there that uh, is on its way out, uh, you know, more natural beauty to enjoy. Um, transportation will be more convenient and it will be less costly because you'll be using public systems that are convenient rather than having to you know, buy a car and keep it maintained and insured and all of that. Um, and the food, you know, we're gonna have an organic agricultural system uh, with the production largely regionalized so that uh, you know who's growing your food, where it came from, and it being organic and not uh, grown for long shelf life but for consumption when it's fresh, you're gonna have better food. I mean, there's so many advantages we can have with this. You have clean air, clean water, uh, more health. And then on the economic side, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a real safety net. So, uh, you, you know, if you wanna start a small business, if you have an idea you wanna to bring to market, a lot of people are afraid to do that now because they're keeping the job they got because they got health insurance. Um, and they don't have anything to fall back on, so they don't even risk it. But even though we're talking about a, a eco-social society where the major means of production are socially owned, there'll be a lot of scope for small businesses and people to try their ideas out uh, without worrying about it, if their business doesn't succeed, them being poor. Because they can go to the employment office, get their job, they've got health care. Uh, if their income's below poverty, it'll come back up. Through the tax system, we would have if your tax if your income's lower than the poverty line, the government sends you money to bring you up above the poverty line. It's built right into the progressive tax structure, and all those things. So that uh, with economic security and more equality, I mean, there are a lot of social problems that come just from inequality. Um, it creates a sense of competition and envy, and people who are lower on the scale feel like it's their own damn fault when in fact it's systemic. And with more equality, I mean, this is correlated across nations, across states. Uh, with more equality, you have more health, uh, longer life, and be a better life. So, you know, these are all things we can look forward to if we embark upon this eco-socialist Green New Deal. So I'm back here with Madeline. Um, I want to hear your thoughts. What what did you think about you know everything that was said and his his policies in general? I he's like where is where is this man? Where did he come from? It feels like he's been around you know for ever. Well, not ever, but you know he's he's been an activist and really in um, the thick of really important you know contemporary social political justice movements. And he seemed to be like solid. I mean, I'm sold, you know, he's, I'm on board with Howie. He's so 
he's a politician. I mean, he's so eloquent. He knows his stuff. And um, I would certainly feel extremely safe <laughs> if he were my president. Um, and I mean, I definitely think that, you know, you and I are are on board with, his, you know, his politics. But um, obviously, this this country is not. And that's a larger question of like, when when would you know and what are the factors contributing um to sort of this disparity but i loved the interview and i'm i'm feeling like weird that i've never heard of him before basically i'm like why what's happening here yeah. i think he hasn't been wanting to be in the spotlight really he was you know requested by some of his uh, party members to like please you know, just step up and run for president. And then when so many people kept asking him, he was like, all right, I'll do it. Um, I think it's pretty evident that he's doing what he's doing out of passion. He truly believes in all of this. It's not about power for him. I also think it's, um, it's, it's interesting. And I think the question is, when will we understand how important it is to actually start looking at everything from his lens of, you know, this so eco-socialist Green New Deal, where, it's not just about saving the turtles or, you know, making sure that we have nature around. It's literally about rebuilding society and making sure we are closing the inequality gaps and making sure people are getting fair pay and like decent housing situations. And it's, it ties back into everything. And I think we haven't understood, I think it's starting to become more, more like it's shedding more light on that this year with black lives matter and stuff and it's becoming more known for people that you know it's it isn't fair like climate change touches so many different parts of society and it will continue to and get worse so by by dealing with this like i like green economy should be a no-brainer for everyone yeah but it's that word green economy and that word like eco-socialist green new deal like say that you know five times faster a bunch of conservatives <laughs> like they wouldn't leave the room faster it's it and to us it's like huh like wow what a concept and i mean i guess yeah i agree with you it it, it seems like he he's also just a real sort of people's person he's not sort of vying for the spotlight and and what he preaches is is that yes we need we need social reform we need to transform our social systems and our economic situation um and and it will transform our climate basically which i think is such a no-brainer but still this term eco-socialist green new deal is like utopian ideal i'm so like sold you know um why are we still hung up on economic reform and and climate reform being two separate ideas why is that still such a hard concept for people to grasp it's like the concept of like okay, okay so what if we solve the climate crisis then we'll end up with like tons of jobs and people prospering and like that's not a bad byproduct I know. to have you know well it's 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 like that meme i saw about the masks someone was like People yeah. keep like, you know, arguing, should I not wear a mask? Like, should I wear a mask or not? And it's like, well, let's say it's like the virus is not real. Let's just say for whatever reason, it's just, you know, baloney or whatever bullshit. And <laughs> the only thing that happens is that, <laughs> you know, the only thing that happens is that you've been wearing a mask for a little bit and everyone's safer. 
And the same thing goes for climate change. It's like, what if climate change isn't real, but well, we'll end up with better air quality and happier people anyways. Like, what does it really matter? I think we're missing the point, trying to argue back and forth, like, is climate change real? How much will it actually affect us? It's like, do we want to kill nature or should we figure this out? You know, it's like a no-brainer. It's perplexing that even the individuals who are in control, uh, you know, and, and, you know, principally responsible for the climate crisis seem to not be making, I mean, yes, there are major shifts happening um, in, I would say the agri, you know, the agricultural sector, um, you know, companies like Purdue and and all these sort of large agro businesses kind of investing in more plant-based alternatives they are getting with the times, but in terms of fossil fuel and, and other kinds of extractive industries, it's like, it's going to be so much more expensive to clean up the problem. It's never going to go away if we have a climate crisis. Like you're only going to keep having to rebuild cities out of, by super storms. You're only going to have to, you know, continue. It's like not going to get cheaper. It's actually so much smarter financially to invest in a plan now, but that's not happening. So like, what the heck? I, I just took the class with Al Gore. It's called the Climate Reality Leadership Training. And um, we, especially at the beginning of the week, we were really looking at, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, we had some amazing speakers. And what Al Gore actually asked, one of them was like, how can we learn from this movement? Like it was really successful. And so many people took to the streets in no time. And what can we as climate leaders learn to push the same message basically and get the same like reach within communities and like all over the country and all over the world. And what he, what the guest, I can't remember his name now after that, but he said, we need to keep it as simple. Like what, how can we simplify it to the same level? Because I think what the the issue has always been with climate change, there's too many things we need to deal with and it's too big and it feels too far off and it's like not relatable to people. And we may not have known how much it's affecting us on a personal level yet, but it's going to become very evident soon no matter if you're advocating for healthier soil or cleaner oceans or better air quality or whatever it is within the environmental field that you're like super passionate about, it it should somehow always come back to the same simple question. And then that can sort of like permeate through everything you're doing. What if that's like, do I want a livable future? Yes or no? Does black lives matter? Yes or no? Like it has to be such a no brainer almost where like, of course it does. And so then that should steer every decision you make and how you live your life. I know it's more complicated than that, but I'm trying to really figure out like, what is that strong message that can really just touch people where they're like, yeah, I'm on board. Of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So how about voting this year? Because geez, I mean, the election was already a lot of nerve wracking as it was. And then COVID hit. And now it's like, will people even show up to vote? And I saw something recently, you may have seen the two on Instagram where like, people thought that the 2016 election was very even between the two parties and like a tiny sliver of people didn't vote. 40% of the millennials didn't vote or something. I'm getting the numbers wrong, but like there was incredible amount of numbers that did not even show up. Yeah. I mean, for like a democracy, this country is, has some of the worst voter turnout. Like we, so many, so like people don't vote in this country and it's so crazy. And it's like, why? What's happening? And I see so much celebrity, you know, and like media sort of campaigns to try to get people to vote. There was one that was like, 
celebrities telling our, their friends and like recording conversations like making sure you're registered today but that didn't appear even on my radar until after like the, the day that it was happening and I'm like mm. I don't even know why that's a thing so so yeah I don't know but I think campaign like the one that you know you and I were involved in too like plus one vote and like vote save America do you know about vote save America that's a great campaign too there's a lot of um of exciting initiatives but i do wonder yeah what's what's going to happen in the election what's going to happen in november yeah and i think people need to we need to start spreading that you can actually vote from home if you just order your vote from home ballot in time i think they that would push the the timeline though to october 20th or something or maybe not i might be wrong again i need to really check my numbers before i'm talking to this well it's bad because i mean well the thing is is like we it should be so much simpler. It, they're making it so complicated for us. And actually, seven states already mail you your ballot, even if like you before you even request it. So already, like before this whole year and this whole COVID situation, there are seven states that already just automatically mail you a ballot anyway, even if you don't request it. So we have some of these systems in place already, but it's not, they're not being utilized. Yeah. I they're, think- they're being suppressed. The, the biggest, if you are an American citizen, U.S. citizen, um, I'm not, so I can't really speak on behalf of myself. But if you have I'll, the I'll power to vote, please, for the whole world, show up to vote this year. Like, I'm begging you. I wish I could, but I can't. So I'm going to just sit here on the sidelines and, like, really push people to vote because it's so important. And or you don't even have to show up to vote. <laughs> I know. You can just, like, sit at home <laughs> in your PJs or undies Never or whatever. easier. Never been easier. (laughs) Well, like, let's just talk about one more thing because, you know, I I do, I really wish that Howie could win the election. I think that would change the entire world. I think the reality is he's not going to stand a chance uh, against Biden or Trump. So, Mm -hmm. what would that mean if, like, could that actually harm the election if he stole some of the votes from Biden? Mm, Interesting. I mean, I th- yeah, I mean, I think that it's a double-edged sword because we need to get people aware of the eco. What did he say? Um, eco-socialist, eco-socialist. Uh, New Deal, Green New Deal, um, and we need to, you know, people need to become aware that this is the what, what the viable future looks like if we stand a chance. But at the same time, like Biden is, it's like it, you don't have to like him. You don't have to like. The person you're voting for. They just have to not be worse than the person you're not <laughs> voting for. Just vote for the least worst person. And I think um, as Americans, we have this kind of ideology. Maybe it's just sort of cultural that like we want the best. And if it's not the best, then it's a no. Like it's my way or the highway. And and it's like the masks thing. It's like just get step outside of yourself and your ego and be able to and I don't mean for that to sound condescending I'm just I'm just sort of saying like culturally there is a there is a healthy amount of sort of self-advocacy and selfishness and right now we need to become selfish and like use that selfishness but apply it to everybody and that's called empathy (laughs) and and vote for the least worst person which is going to be biden yeah you don't have to love him i mean i think i would speak for both of us we're not like obsessed with biden he's got issues he the man can barely you know there's issues obviously but he's 
he's not Trump and he's got an actual plan, as you were saying to me earlier. Right. You know? Yeah. I think we got to just be smart in this election, like put our personal feelings aside. And like you said, it's almost like it's a duty, you know, show up for vote, educate yourself a little bit. We don't have time to mess around with politics anymore. I wish politics didn't have such an important part to play in the environment and the directions of our future. But just look at Brazil, for example, like one new president and the wildfires went up by like 60 something percent in one year. It's crazy. You know, it just, it just takes one person. And like Trump has been, you know, taking back so many environmental laws and making a lot of damage during his years. But I actually just learned that he, we are not drawn out of the Paris agreement yet. I oh, think it's like, he, we have until the day after something the day after the election or something. So like, as long as we act quickly, we can still be back in. Like he has not done the damage you think he has. So we're still on board. Well, Madeline, thank you so much for coming here and chatting with me about politics and really important stuff and for bringing a shining light to my life and to all the listeners. Well, I'm so excited to be on board. Thank you for also being a shining light in my life. And I can't wait to talk about all the stuff moving forward. All the stuff. And if anyone is listening, have ideas of like topics they want to listen to or just conversations or things they hear and they want us to like dive deeper, we're here for you. This is a very inclusive conversation and I wanted to keep going because I think one of the most important things we can do today is to keep talking about stuff. Shit needs to come to surface, so to speak. Bring the shit to the surface. (laughs) Thank you again for listening. We're so honored to have you here. You will hear a lot more from me and Maddie very soon. And remember, if you feel like you have a few dollars extra, you want to go and buy me a climate coffee or maybe a happy hour drink, head over to the Patreon page linked in the bio. I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Until next time, have an awesome day. Take some time to rest and reflect. And we hope to see you back here very soon.